Back from the long weekend into a short week, and we've got plenty to discuss on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. Let's go. We've had a steady stream of readers, including those identifying as church-going Catholics, complaining about how their church is campaigning on the abortion amendment on the November ballot. These writers are certain that the church's politicking breaks the law. Our chief political writer, Andrew Tobias, set the record straight on what the rules are. Laura, what did he tell us? Churches can campaign for issues, just not candidates. And that's federal tax law that mandates this. It's not in the Constitution. I think people think about the separation of church and state like it's something that the government is going to police. But that's not true. So the Catholic Church is preparing to distribute literature, deploy church leaders at high dollar political fundraisers. They're going to make direct campaign contributions that could be at least hundreds of thousands of dollars and have preach priests preach from the pulpit and probably in the bulletin too. And that's all because they really don't want this amendment to pass. And that's totally allowed because tax law views politicking around things like the proposed abortion amendment as lobbying. And they're allowed to do that. They're just not allowed to tell you which candidate to vote for. And it won't matter. (laughs) It won't make a bit of difference. Uh, It's interesting to me that it's Catholics that have been sending flares our way saying, hey, isn't this wrong? You know, they shouldn't be doing this. This is supposed to be separate. Why are they doing this? They don't proselytize to help children. Really kind of upset about it. And these are members or self-identifying members of the church. But the rules are clear. Look, the other thing is the Catholic Church has never not been involved in the arguments Mm -hmm. over this issue. From as far back as I can remember, the Catholic Church has been dead set against this and done everything it can to stop it. It invested a huge amount of money in Michigan and it's still lost big, right? Absolutely. I think $6 million for an unsuccessful campaign there. And they did give money to try to defeat issue one. That was the $900,000 to protect women, Ohio, which was the official anti-issue one political campaign group. Um, You know, I... We did have something in our church bulletin about issue one, and it was basically like, there's an election, read the information, go vote. So I didn't feel like that was heavy handed. But you're right. The Catholic Church is adamantly anti-abortion. So this doesn't surprise me. Other churches are actually on the other side, the Greater Cincinnati Board of Rabbis and the United Church of Christ. They are, they, um, are, are part of the Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights. So therefore, this amendment that we're voting on in November, I, I mean, I've said this before, but I think the majority of Catholics probably don't agree 100% with church doctrine. And this is something that not everybody sees eye to eye on, but I agree with you. It's not going to change anybody's mind. The Catholic Church's support of issue one really did inflame a lot of people because they felt like the Catholic Church was willing to flush our government down the toilet for the single issue of abortion with, with the argument, the ends justify the means. And they were pretty offended. I heard from a bunch of people on that. Like, you cannot you cannot agree with something that destroys democracy in Ohio just to get to the point you want to get to. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder if, you know, this is one of the reasons that churches are losing members. We have the lowest church participation that we've had in years across a lot of churches. And I wonder if they're just so out of touch now with their their congregations, or maybe they don't care. Maybe they figure, hey, this is God's law and it doesn't change according to whim. 
Well, I mean, that interesting idea about fewer people going to church, right? I think we've talked on this podcast before about how people want to belong to something and it used to be their church or their Elks group or whatever. And now people aren't joining churches as much and they don't have that same community. So they look for other things. And, you know, we've got the rise of Trump. I don't know if you want to draw a direct correlation here, but it, it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see exactly, exactly how, how fiery it gets in the pulpit over the next couple of months. Well, and look, the Catholic Church does not really favor women. There are a whole lot of women that wish they could have... You don't say, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> ...positions of authority in the church, and they're not allowed. And so I think that also harms... You know, because it's all about the Virgin Mary. Just be like the Virgin Mary, and we would have no problems, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> You're going to have to go to confession now. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Native Americans want his name off an Ohio National Forest against the wishes of Senator J.D. Vance, but a lot of things are named for Matt Anthony Wayne, including Fort Wayne, Indiana. Layla, who was this guy? Why is he so renowned? Lucas Dupre did a wonderful story answering these questions over the weekend. What did he find? Yeah, so indeed, this guy's name is on so many towns, villages, counties, rivers. In fact, there is a Wayne County in 16 states, including Ohio, of course. And they're all named after General Anthony Wayne or Mad Anthony, as he was known by his nickname. And we were interested, as you said, in finding out more about him since the U.S. Forest Service recently proposed changing the name of the Wayne National Forest to the Buckeye National Forest. And what Lucas discovered in his search of, of history is that Wayne was a Pennsylvania native who fought in the Revolutionary War. He and the troops he commanded helped in, in a really critical victory against the British at Stony Point in New York, and he fought in several other Revolutionary War battles. And he was considered one of the, the best and most successful military leaders of the early American Republic. In the later stages of the war, he was sent to Georgia, where he helped push out the British. So after the war, the state of Georgia gave him two plantations that were taken from British loyalists. And like many plantation owners at the time, he had slaves. He had 47 of them. But he wasn't a great farmer, it turned out. So he ran for Congress. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was eventually expelled from Congress for voter fraud. Uh, one biographer described it as having friends stuff ballot boxes to get him elected in Georgia. So that was a stain on his reputation. But then in 1792, President George Washington put Wayne in charge of what was known as the Legion of the United States. That's what the U.S. Army was known as for about four years. And Wayne, in charge of this, was his goal was to break indigenous resistance in the Northwest Territory. Of course, the country wasn't very big at the time, so the Northwest included Ohio. And uh, Washington chose Wayne because he was so patriotic and so loyal to the president. And he succeeded in his mission, you could say. He oversaw the Northwest Territory's last major battle between indigenous groups and, and the U.S. at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, which was uh, it took place near present-day Toledo. And as part of this campaign, Wayne attacked indigenous civilians and their food supplies. They, they burned their crops right before winter, basically guaranteeing starvation during the winter. And they laid waste to villages. He described all of this in a, in a letter he wrote to Secretary of War Henry Knox. So, of course, it, you can put two and two together and, and understand that the, our heroic first president, George Washington, was probably cool with Wayne's tactics here. Um, at any rate, that final battle led to the Treaty of Greenville with the Alliance of Tribes. The treaty wasn't signed by all the tribes in Ohio, but it established Indian lands and led to a temporary peace. 
the later American settlement eventually uh, forced indigenous people from this land and scattered them. The peace fell apart. It led to the War of 1812. And by 1830, we saw the Indian Removal Act and the forced relocation of, of indigenous people. Yeah, it's a good story that kind of lays it all out there. And it does make you question whether you really want to have things named for him. Again, we're judging him by the standards of today, but there's a a pretty strong will these days not to have things named for people who own slaves, which was not even mentioned in the J.D. Vance controversy. Um, th- this, I'm sure lots of people read this and were trying to make up their minds on, on what to do. He was, J.D. Vance called him a founding father. It's not a founding father of the United States, but you could argue he was a founding father of Ohio, right? Yes, that, that's true. I mean, clearly, clearly what he did, which a lot of people would describe as atrocious to the indigenous people here, led to the white settlement of of Ohio. So it really depends on what lens you're viewing that through, uh, how you how you view his legacy here. I mean, would we would we be here today without Wayne? I don't know. Uh, but certainly we probably would have a a, a more robust indigenous population if if they hadn't been uh, forced from their homeland. It's I mean it's it's uh I understand it's it's terrible debate. <laughs> it's a charged issue because a lot of people don't think you should dishonor the people that you've named things for. Maybe the answer is to make it an evolving thing. Like it's Wayne National Forest, originally named for this guy, but make it the Wayne of your choice. If you like Westerns, make it John Wayne. If you like comic strips, Bruce <laughs> Wayne. Just Did you the... know that Bruce Wayne was actually inspired by this guy in history? No. It's true. Really? It's true. That wasn't in the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that... <laughs> Well, we could. Yeah, you're right. We could have put it in the story, but it would have been sure. People would have read it if we said Batman in the headline, Layla. (laughs) Oh my god, I can't. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. So, really, the Bruce Wayne creation was based partly on Mad Anthony Wayne. Yes, it's true. And in fact, I read, and I I could not verify this, but on one site that there is a comic book in which there is there was like an episode of of uh, Batman in which he goes back in time and meets Mad Anthony Wayne. I don't know. Lucas may have to write another story about this guy. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The more gerrymandered Ohio has become, the more polarized our lawmakers have become. I don't think anyone can argue with me on that. But is gerrymandering the cause of the discord? Would we have more civil discourse if the legislature actually represented Ohio instead of being lopsided by power-hungry mapmakers? Lisa Sabrina Eaton explored this as part of our civil discourse series. Yeah, she found that the gap between popular sentiment among Ohio voters and Ohio policymaking can really be blamed on gerrymandering. And that's according to University of Cincinnati political scientist David Niven. He says that our rigged maps have turned Ohio into a supercharged majority, disconnected from average Ohioans. And he said, actually, if you ranked all state legislatures on their ideology, Ohio would be to the right of Mississippi. And he said that, you know, 20% of voters participate in congressional primaries. So those 20%, usually political activists who are very motivated to vote, have an outsized influence on who's elected, and it pushes candidates to the extremes, both left and right. And he says that lawmakers are thinking about their next next election, may balk at bipartisan deals because that won't look good to their hardline 
you know, uh, base. They don't want to alienate those hardline voters. And lawmakers in extreme gerrymandered districts are more extremely partisan than in districts that are not tailored for a specific party. And that's because, again, of that high voter participation in primaries by party activists. Common Cause Ohio Executive Director Catherine Terser says, these folks are drunk on power. What do you do with drunks? You take away their keys. <laughs> it's a good line. The, the I wish we'd get to open primaries. I think it would just wipe this nonsense out. The, the tempers of the people in the legislature today are the worst. I mean, you have people just trying to grab more and more power, which is what issue one was about. And this story kind of lays it out pretty clearly that the more you gerrymander, the worse it gets. We got to get away from that. That's why Maureen O'Connor's move to change the Constitution and pull all the elected people out of this map making is a good move. And I wonder if this was behind Governor DeWine's change of heart on so many things. He was a strong conservative governor. He got us through COVID. But because there's a veto-proof supermajority, he can veto stuff and it doesn't matter because he'll be overridden. So I wonder if that's changed the way he governs as well. Well, it's clearly made the balance of powers lopsided. The governor doesn't really have any power because, like you said, the legislature does what it wants. Matt Huffman actually said that and in an interview with the Columbus Dispatch. We can do whatever we want. That's unchecked power. That's never a good thing. We got to get it under control. It's well worth reading Sabrina's story. It's filled with good detail. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had a case not long ago of a Northeast Ohio guy who ate poisonous mushrooms and came close to losing his liver. Turns out we've had more poisonous mushrooms cases in Ohio than we thought. Laura, what's the story? Yeah, apparently it is crazy big mushroom season in this this year, probably because of all the rain we've been having. But this is the poison amatoxin, and it's an Amanita phalloidus mushroom. They're often mistaken by mushroom hunters for the edible variety. And usually they get their cases starting the first week of October. They conclude by Halloween. This year, they saw the poisonings two months earlier, saw their first case on August 8th. And that was so impressive that doctors thought the poisoning must have been due to something else. So this doctor who Gretchen Kuda Crowen talked to had been treating the cases since 2009. He's got a record 12 patients with the poisoning in 2017. And so far in 2023, he's seen seven patients. And that's before we even enter mushroom season yet. So these these look um, like green, brown, or brilliant white. They look identical to edible varieties in, in Asia or Eastern Europe, which is why a lot of the poisonings happen to be immigrants, people who think they know what the mushrooms are, but they are fooled by these imposters. Yeah, I just don't get how people are going out picking wild mushrooms and thinking it's okay to eat. It's a, it's a huge gamble. It's like determining whether a snake is poisonous by having it bite you. Um, I'd be stunned to hear of these numbers. The people are out foraging, bringing these home, eating them. And once you eat them, you're in big trouble. They have that, that medicine that they can use that they fly in from Philadelphia if you catch it in time. But this is, this destroys livers and can kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you get your first symptoms six to 24 hours after eating. That's nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. If you don't seek treatment, the damage to the liver can start really soon, even if the symptoms disappear. So there is a kit similar to a home pregnancy test or COVID-19 test that you can use to determine the presence of the amatoxin. But I I don't know. I, I, I am never going to eat a wild mushroom, period. 
but I don't know how much it's worth it to test your wild mushrooms before you eat it. Maybe just stay away from it. Well, that. they're trying to commercialize that, but the problem they know is it's a limited use. Not a whole lot of people are going to buy right. it. It expires on the shelf if it's not used. It was it was an interesting discussion of trying to bring it to market. But even if I had it, I wouldn't trust it. I would not eat a wild mushroom. I would be worried that I would lose my liver. Good story by Gretchen Kudakrow, and it's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. The federal government's inability to process passport applications efficiently has caused some travelers to miss out on trips and frustrated countless others. Lisa, what is Congressman Max Miller of Ohio doing to get this problem fixed, both for people in dire need in the moment and in the long term? Yeah, the Republican from Rocky River has helped 200 of his constituents with passport issues, and that's since he took office in January. He is co-sponsor of the Bipartisan Passport Modernization Act. It's an effort to tackle that 40% increase in passport applications since last year. Um, This bill would require the State Department to upgrade its online filing system. It would give the Secretary of State authority to hire more passport and visa processors for the next three years years, and they would have to give quarterly reports on processing times, any delays, and how they're erasing that huge backlog. This bill would also require the General Accounting Office to prepare a report on the operations at the National Passport Information Center. This legislation has been referred to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And Miller, as as I said, helped so many constituents, people whose vacations had to be canceled because they couldn't get their passports on time and all kinds of pain. Good for him that he's actually dealing with a true constituent need and not all that loudly. He's been working away trying to get it fixed. This is like the unemployment problem in Ohio, though. You wonder why it's not fixed. It's a basic government service. Every government in the world does this. How did we screw it up so badly? Well, again, and I say this a lot, I know, I think it all goes back to ancient IT systems. If you're not upgrading your systems and keeping track, that's, you know, that's a big problem. Yeah, I just, it's one where you keep hearing about it and it's okay, come on. Every state has senators and congresspeople who are hearing from their constituents saying, hey, I can't take my trip. You would think that elected group could have the power to say, fix it, fix it now. And that Joe Biden would be interested in having that done before he runs for reelection next year. Good story. It's on cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. We keep talking about the unacceptable situation of children sleeping in a Cuyahoga County office building because the county has no place to send them. It is astounding that this problem continues over a year later. Reporter Caitlin Durbin took a new look at how other counties handle this. Layla, what's their solution? Well, to put it in perspective, in the last reporting year, 503 Ohio children stayed overnight in a county social services office building when appropriate foster placements for them were hard to find. About 20% of the children were under the age of 10. Half were between the ages of 11 and 15. And most of these kids are in Cuyahoga County where kids are are crashing on air mattresses or cots in the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services building. We've written much about this. Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Renane has has promised a solution to this problem. He wants to create a children's home that's adequately staffed and is a much more stable environment than where the kids are now. So Caitlin Durbin wanted to visit similar facilities in in our nearby counties, especially considering that these might serve as models for what they want to build here in Cuyahoga County. And what she observed 
actually sounded really impressive. At Trumbull County's Children's Center, the place has, it has an institutional feeling to be sure. I mean, tiled hallways, locker lined walls, and, and, and pretty strict rules. But the kids Caitlin spoke to there said that they feel welcomed and accepted. The Trumbull Center is, it's a 24 bed residential treatment facility with single bedrooms. They have a half court gym, a commercial kitchen, there's a large playground, and a specialized staff to supervise the kids and provide around the clock trauma counseling. They also, the kids also learn a lot of life skills while they're there. They learn cooking, they bond with the staff, the staff play with them and, and teach and mentor them. But the facility is strict. I mean, meals, school, therapy, family visits, and free time are all scheduled. They can't have cell phones, even the teenagers. Kids can't drive or they can't date while they're staying there. Their shoes are actually locked in a closet after they're used so they can't run away. And breaking the rules in ways that put staff or kids at risk can lead to criminal charges. And at Lake County, she found a very similar scene. There were, you know, pile of shoes at the door where the kids had kicked them off, teens lounging. It felt very familial. They're watching TV, scrolling on their phones, kids' artwork are on the walls, and and you know they had a calendar of upcoming events and birthdays and scheduled activities. They have this very dorm-style housing there, um, plenty of entertainment options. They have a pool table, ping pong table, things like that. Um, they have a, bo- a bouldering wall for climbing, sensory wall, and a really big backyard with a, a playground and basketball court. Court. So the kids are there allowed to use cell phones, if but it's a privilege. They have to demonstrate good behavior, and um, they're required to share social media passwords with staff for monitoring. But you know, there's a significant difference here in, in terms of the sheer volume of kids that pass through the facilities in, in Lake and Trumbull. I mean, Trumbull, for example, sees 200 kids in a given year in their foster care system. And Cuyahoga County has 4,000 kids a year in foster care. So, so I do understand that they're that these are different systems in a lot of ways. But to see how they're they're pulling off this kind of facility, I think is in, should be instructive for for the county. It, if I recall correctly, though, wasn't the Lake County facility one that didn't take special needs kids? Like they didn't take the like the criminal or the behavioral mm, issues. Good point. Uh, I mean, I I don't know that that would be um, what you know, where the kids, well, you know, I don't know. Let me, I have to double check that. Is that what it said in Caitlin's story? Yeah, I think it did. What struck me about this is that Chris Ronane's solution at the Metzenbaum Center would have 15 beds, I think the story says. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about scale, these sites that she visited do more than that. And how will 15 beds solve our problem in Cuyahoga County? Or are they just going to attack it differently where it's more limited? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. I think, though, that at, what we see, though, now at Jane and a Hunter, I don't believe that they ever have more than that number of kids staying in that building. Um, so maybe they're, they're anticipating that this will meet the need. Um, I mean, I know the county does work very hard to find actual placements for, for most of the kids, and these are the ones that are, are exceptionally difficult to place. So hopefully this is an, this is an accurate um, you know, estimate of what the, the county's need is for this building. Well, her story, Caitlin's story really did give you a new perspective on ways to attack this. So I'm glad we took the time to visit. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Most people know this has been the summer of crime for Cleveland, fueled by easy-to-steal cars and easy access to guns. But we're actually getting into territory now we hoped never to see again. Laura, what is it? 
homicide totals that we haven't seen since the early 1980s when the city's population was nearly double. So, I mean, per person, we're talking a lot higher. By the end of the June this year, we had more than 90 homicides. July, we had at least 20. We're at more than 110, and, you know, we're still counting. So Councilman Mike Polensic said he hasn't seen this kind of level of violence in the 44 years he served on council. So constituents are really upset. They want a greater police visibility. They want nighttime curfew. They want enforcement of nuisance laws. Obviously, the city has been trying to attack this problem. So is the state. The Highway Patrol has been helping out. But what we did hear in this story is Olivia and Zach, sorry, Olivia Mitchell and Zachary Smith, they they, po- they put it on a map exactly where these homicides are taking place and who they are. And the highest number is happening in the eastern part of the city. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about downtown. There haven't been as many homicides there, but um, it, it's mostly men in their 20s and 30s. The women were victim in one in 10. The youngest was a year old when he, he died in March, and the oldest was 65 shot in February. When I arrived in Cleveland as a crime reporter, I, I was covering the opposite trend. They were heading to record modern lows, homicides annually in the high 60s, I think it was. It's sad that we are completely on the other side of that spectrum now. You know, and we, we won't hit the all-time numerical record back from the 70s. It was 330-something, but Cleveland had a lot more people back then, so per capita, uh, we're still way out of whack distressing yeah and distressing stuff and it's not just cleveland right obviously this is happening all over the country but and it's people are talking about the lax gun laws is that why we're seeing that obviously in ohio we've loosened those gun laws guns are a lot easier to get uh the carjackings have made it really easy for anyone to steal a car and go wherever they want so all these things come together and you've got this huge problem there's not enough police officers they can't they can't hire as many as they want and it is. I mean, it's there's no there's no easy solution. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We have some controversy over why tornado sirens did not sound in some northeast Ohio cities during the storm that brought a bunch to northeast Ohio. What's the fracas about, Lisa? Well, we had 12 tornadoes that struck north in northeast Ohio on August 24th, and most cities didn't activate their tornado sirens. Among them, Seven Hills, Valley View, Parma, and Independence. Those are the fire chiefs that we talked to. Seven Hills Fire Chief Jamie Lee Mecklenburg says it's only turned on by the city's central dispatch and only when a twister appears to be headed their way. He says... Sirens are intended to warn people who are outdoors to seek shelter. He says he's going to discuss the tornado protocol with other suburban fire chiefs. But he says that if the siren is used for all severe weather, people aren't going to take it seriously. Parma Fire Chief Mike Lasky concurs. He says it's like the boy who cried wolf. He says Parma doesn't use sirens for tornadoes because forecasts are not always accurate. Valley View Fire Chief Ken Papish says the tornado siren is turned on after they get a notification from Ohio's Law Enforcement Automated Data Center, or LEADS. LEADS did not list Valley View as a radar-specific warning area. Um, he said that residents that signed up for the County Ready Notify called Code Red System did get alerts on their phones. That uses National Weather Service data for their notifications. And he urges everybody to sign up for these notifications. Yeah, one of the arguments against the people who are complaining about the lack of sirens is the telephone notifications. Most people that I know, 
that's how they got theirs and headed to their basements. It does seem odd to me, though, that when a storm brings tornadoes to Northeast Ohio, this one brought them, that you wouldn't sound the siren to let people know. to get. This was late at night. People were in bed. Get out of bed. Go down in your basement. There were tornadoes in the area. The other thing that was weird, in Seven Hills at least, the sirens are not designed for you to hear inside your home. It's just for people who are outside telling them to go inside. That seems odd to me as well. Well, but tornadoes are the least predictable of any storms. You don't know what path they're going to take. You don't know how long they're going to stay on the ground, whether they, you know, skip over areas. So you might even be, I don't know, it's its something you're trying to predict something that's not predictable. But, but that night, would you have wanted to be awakened so you would know the tornadoes were striking around Northeast Ohio or were you happy not to know? I was awakened by my phone, you know, so what did you do? I thought about going down into the basement, but I I went and looked at radar to see what was happening. It's an interesting controversy, and we'll have to see what they do to massage their policies. Uh, But again, I think the phone warnings are are taking over. Although I got to tell you, I turned mine off because they were coming too frequently. It was like the boy who cried wolf. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to stop there. We've got one story left. We'll leave it for later in the week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.